Welcome to Creating Great Workplaces with Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. In his 30-year corporate career, Dr. Mark learned firsthand that healthy workplaces had a direct linkage to sustained growth and profitability, while dysfunctional workplaces experienced exactly the opposite. In his search for the secret sauce, Dr. Mark interviews senior executives from companies that have been recognized as a top workplace in their market or category. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Hinderleiter. Welcome to Creating Great Workplaces. You know, in my career, I've seen the direct connection between the health of the workplace culture and the financial performance of the business. So this show is about discovering the secret sauce for creating great workplaces and sustained business performance. Today, my guest is Lisa Earl McLeod. Lisa is the founder of McLeod & Company. She's an advisor, consultant, and speaker who works with senior executives and sales teams around the world. Lisa is the author of five best-selling books and a sought-after speaker known for her authenticity and humor. Lisa's work has been featured in Forbes, Fortune, and the New York Times. Lisa, welcome to Creating Great Workplaces. Well, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Mark. You and I have known each other for quite some time. We have, and it's been too long, so this is a great opportunity to catch back up. I have been following your work, too. So I'd love to talk about uh, my favorite book of yours called Leading with Noble Purpose, How to Create a Tribe of True Believers. Not only do I love the title, the content was awesome, and it really resonates with the kind of work that I do, too. So, So what was the inspiration for writing this book? Well, Leading with Noble Purpose actually in, came out after I wrote Selling with Noble Purpose. Right. And right. so I'll kind of give you the way, the lay of the land here. So I wrote Selling with Noble Purpose after my research revealed that salespeople who have a purpose bigger than money, who truly want to improve life for customers, actually outperform salespeople who are just focused on targets and quotas. But what I realized after I wrote that book and several organizations implemented it was it went well beyond salespeople. It really needs to encompass the entire company. And so there was this one guy who I both loved and cursed. And he was uh, Steve Denning is his name. He knows I talk about him. He wrote for Forbes and he wrote this glowing review of the Selling with Noble Purpose book. And it was very important to me because uh, the book was, you know, I was relatively new in the space and, and it really broadcast the book. And at the end, he wrote this one little paragraph. He said, if I have one quibble about this book, it's that if only the salespeople care about customers, they will be feel like they're an oasis in the middle of a parched desert if the rest of the company doesn't care. And I was like, back on it, Steve. Now I got to go write another book. <laughs> Because I knew he was right the second I read it. So, which is a really long answer to your question, but leading with noble purpose, the subtitle really tells why I wrote the book, which is how to create a tribe of true believers. Because we've all had those experiences in companies where everybody believes in the cause of the company. Yep whether the cause of the company is helping uh, customers improve their IT experience, whether the cause of the company is Ritz-Carlton, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, everyone has the same North Star. And so I wrote Leading with Noble Purpose to help organizations align every single person in the company 
around making a difference to customers. So here's the, the, the contrast to that in my experience. I was in an employee uh, meeting one time, Lisa, and the CEO said to the an employee meeting, you know, my top job is to create shareholder wealth, which inspired nobody. Right. <laughs> I mean, nobody, uh, crickets to, to that statement. So I have lived both sides of what you're talking about. We got to go back to the shareholder wealth thing because I understand, I coach a lot of CEOs and I understand the pressure that they are under to create right. shareholder value. But I want to tell you two important things. If you are any kind of senior leader listening to this, number one, Companies with a purpose bigger than money outperform the competition by over 350%. There is real hard data that tells us companies who make improving customers' lives the centerpiece of what they do return more to shareholders. So if you are going down that shareholder path, purpose is your answer. The second thing I'll say from an employee engagement and culture standpoint The CEO saying my job is to return more to the shareholders is literally like a farmer standing in front of all the pigs saying my job is to produce as much bacon as possible. Are you in with me? (laughs) No, No, because what it's telling the employees is maybe not I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to come close. It's telling the employees you are a pawn, a cog in a big money making machine and you don't matter. It even says our customers don't matter. And so you create this transactional relationship with your employees, you're toast. So sorry, this is my pet peeve. I had to go off on a tangent about it. Well, I'm going to respond to that. (laughs) In my first career, 30-year business career, first 20 of those, I worked for a retail, a national, or actually North American retail photography chain. And we had a very clear kind of purpose And it was called, we help families create great memories, you know, with with the photographies. And that's a purpose that people felt really good about because we all relate to families. We all relate to memories. And to do that for a living created a tribe of believers to, to, uh, to the name of your book. And the thing is, you used a very important word there, feel. Yeah. Emotion matters at work. It's the center of everything. Absolutely. Well, I'm pretty sure we can do this conversation for two or three hours. So let me ask you a, a question about something that, again, resonated with me in the book, where you talk about money follows purpose. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell me more about that. It does. So here's the easiest way to explain it. If you have company A and company B, and companies A CEO stands up there and says, just as yours did, our purpose is to deliver a return to our shareholders. Everything we need to do is focused on making money. That is the single biggest driver of this company. How are we going to make more money? Imagine their competitors down the street say, our North Star is to improve life for customers. Yes, we need to be a profitable company, but our our end game, our true north, our noble purpose, the reason we exist is to improve life for customers. So everything that you should do should be in the service of that. If you think about those two companies, company A, our purpose is to make money, company B, our our purpose is to improve life for customers. 
which company as a customer would you rather deal with? Well, duh, company yeah. B. But let's take it a step further. And, and so the company B is not giving away their product for free. But if you think about which company is going to be more innovative, the ones in the room that say, how can we make more money? Are the ones that sit in a room saying, how can we improve life for customers? Well, that's why Blockbuster's out of business and Netflix clean their clock. That's why Monster.com is out of business and LinkedIn clean their clock. Because those Blockbuster and Monster were sitting in a room saying, how can we make more money? LinkedIn and Netflix were sitting in a room saying, how can we do something different for customers? So the second company is going to be more innovative. And the, and the, the third piece is, which company would you rather work for? Somebody that says, we're just, again, you're you're a, this cog in this money machine or someone that says, we're going to help people. What was the create memories? Yeah, uh, create create uh, great memories. Yeah. Create great memories. Well, I want to be part of that. That sounds yeah. fun. Yeah. Because human beings at our core, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And so that culture where the, the money follows the meaning that culture where we have this North Star of wanting to improve life for somebody. And again, it can be making memories. It can be improving their IT. You don't have to cure cancer. If you are, great. But but it can simply be making a difference. We're just creating a great experience on the night they visit our restaurant. And it's a moment out of their day when they have fun with their family. It can be anything. But when you have that as your North Star, Customers feel it. They want to do more business with you. You have more revenue. You drive more innovation and you attract more talent. So I took a page out of your book with the name of this podcast, Creating Great Workplaces. That's the North Star for me to, yeah. to, to talk to people like you that can help reveal the secret sauce for listeners, but really to do that with my my clients to create great workplaces because there'll be a better place to work and they'll be more profitable. I have lived what you have said a couple of times. <laughs> so uh, I know that it went from, we were that noble purpose company. We were all in and then somebody new comes in and we become like that company. A we are only about the money. Right. And we see this story again and again, first it erodes morale. Then it erodes customer retention. And then it ultimately impacts earnings. Uh, absolutely. And That's I, the order. Yeah, yeah. You and I were talking kind of before we started recording. What I have seen is in my career a couple of times is a company with a noble purpose and a healthy workplace culture that people were proud of, they, they were glad to be part of, was profitable and had uh, long-term sustained growth. And the company whose business was to create a money machine Lost money. <laughs> so. lose money. And what's interesting is the company whose purpose is to create a money machine, if someone comes in with that into a healthy company and they want to try and increase the earnings and the profitability, they can do it in a year. If they come into a healthy company, they can do it in a year because you will still have the employee goodwill and the customer goodwill, and you can cut expenses and do all kinds of efficiency things. So for the first year, about a year, you will make more money. It's in year two and year three that you start making less money because that's when the employee morale erodes and that's when the customer retention erodes and then you get out innovated. And it's a story we see again and again. And I think what's interesting when you talk about workplace culture, 
Culture has to be in the service of something. It stands for something. And a lot of companies have thought, well, we're going to improve our culture. We're going to offer, you know, have this great cafeteria and have free food. We're going to offer childcare. We're going to do all that. And all those things are great. But if at the core, your company doesn't stand for something, it's going to be really hard to create a great culture. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was one of my questions that you you just hit head on is kind of the connection between workplace culture and noble purpose. Mm-hmm. They, they really do go together. They absolutely do, because it's if you think about cultures that you're part of a state, uh, a country, a civic group, a church, uh, you know, embroiders, you know, group, whatever it is, most cultures either stand for something or sometimes they're against something. We do have cultures that are against something. But there's always a true north for what unites a culture. And so in business, the default true north is money. And it's not because anybody's a bad person. Yes, there's unchecked greed. Yes, there's scandal and all that. But the majority of people are decent people who just want to go to work and make a living for their family and maybe be able to afford, you know, to go on vacation. And so, but what happens is because the language of business is all around money, because the things, the metrics that are front and center are all about money, that becomes the default true north. And it's not by design, it's by default. And so as leaders, what we have to do is create a different true north. And it's not vaguely about customers. We care about customers, we care about customers. That's not enough. It's what impact are we having on customers? You talked about it with the memories. We can talk about it with, you know, LinkedIn is a client of ours and they were really clear they're going to reinvent the way that people recruit and hire. And, and they have. And so it has to not just be this vague notion of customers. It has to be, how do we make a difference to customers? Something that everybody in the company can share so that even the backstage accountant and the backstage IT person at that at that photography company, no, I'm doing the accounting, but it's in the service of creating these memories for people. Yeah, absolutely. And companies that can connect the dots for people to, to their job, to how that impacts the noble purpose. That's um, exactly right. This is an old story, but you just reminded me, like, I don't know, 30 years ago, when Steve Jobs was interviewing John Scully, who was then CEO of Pepsi, basically said, look, man, do you want to make sugar water or do you want to change the world? Right. (laughs) And it's interesting. So it's funny you bring that up. So I got the chance to interview John Scully. Oh my God. It was like, for me, it was like meeting Mick Jagger, you know, my heart's beating faster and everything. And he talked about that moment. And what was interesting is he said, I had never thought about it in that way before. Yeah. I, he's a nice guy. He's an ambitious guy. He wants to be successful. He's of a certain age where the model for success was you, Mr. Man, need to be a provider and make a lot of money and run a big thing. And so he went, okay, I'll do that. And he said, when Jobs said that to me, I realized there was this whole other world. It, like in that one statement, asking me that one question, all of a sudden I realized, oh, this could actually make a difference to people. Oh, I'm in. And what, what's happening now is people my age 
sort of a, a lot of a lot of people learned that young people are coming out of the gate knowing that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, one of the things I really got a kick of in your book was uh, basically the millennials' message to management. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing you need to know about millennials, and like any generation, it, first thing to understand about generations, it doesn't mean everyone's the same but it means they grew up having some of the same experiences. That's all it means. Do you know, like Tom Brokaw has written about the greatest generation. They grew up with World War II as one of the defining things of their lives. And so the millennials had this experience, having raised one of them, where all of their teachers, all of their parents said, you're special. You're going to make a difference. You're going to change the world. And they believed us. And you know what? We were right. We weren't wrong to tell them that. And so it's when your special airs on the side of more special than everyone else that you have a problem. Right, right. But seeding this inherent belief that you matter in this world, that you are here to make a difference, that your contributions are meaningful. Doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. Doesn't mean you get special treatment. Doesn't mean you have a big ego. That's a whole other problem. But seeding the belief that your contribution matters was a wonderful thing that parents did for this generation because they are now coming into the workforce and they're willing, the smart ones, they're willing to do hard work. All this, oh, millennials don't want to work. Not in my experience. Mine either. Yeah, they will work, but they're not going to work on some BS thing that doesn't matter, that doesn't make a difference. And they have, because they came of age with social media bombarding them with messages, they have a great BS detector. They do. You know, a lot of folks are millennial bashers. I am not one of them. I have millennial grown sons uh, and I've managed millennials. And my experience is kind of what you're talking about and what Glassdoor reports that Today's generation, uh, today's workforce, when they are looking at an opportunity, they are looking for a company. What's their purpose? And, and yep. do they resonate with that? What's the help? What's their workplace culture? Is that going to be a great place to work? Because they're not going to tolerate you know, uh, the BS that you're talking about. Well, and it's and it's interesting because the things that millennials want are what everyone wants. They're just the first generation. We all want purpose and meaning. We all want to know we matter. They're the first generation that will quit in mass if they don't have it. That's the difference. And I think the beauty of that generation is they are forcing businesses to get better. Mm -hmm. Right. They are. And it. They're forcing businesses to get better. And it's just like when, you know, a zillion years ago, women came into the workforce and they started asking for things. Frankly, we didn't ask for enough. But when they started asking for things and saying, we shouldn't tolerate these things, businesses, oh, we can't do it, we can't do it. And then they got better. You know, 100 years ago, I would have started working in a factory at the age of nine. It maybe died in a factory fire. And then some people said, you know what? We shouldn't have child labor. That's terrible. And all the businesses went, we, well, how are we going to survive without child labor? We have to have child labor. And now, at least in America, you wouldn't think about it. Yeah. The same thing is here. This is a natural evolution of people 
asking for more in a way that actually benefits everyone. Yeah, that's a yeah. great way to say that. One of the things in your book where you talked about metrics, at least how we do metrics now, and medi- the connection between today's metrics and mediocrity, uh, yeah, that, yeah. I really resonated with that. So tell us a little bit about that. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've written about it. And there's since been some other articles. There was actually a very famous um, HBR article that said, are metrics um, eroding your business? And I'll give you the example. We all say there's a, a very famous quote from, um, was it Drucker? Or if you can't measure it. You can't manage it. Drucker. You can't manage it. Yeah. yeah. That's the wrong quote. We all have said that. And the last part of that quote is, that is a very common misperception is what he actually said. So, he, and so what happens is here's an example. If I say in my family, we want to have dinner together four nights a week, that's a litmus test. That's an important thing as a family that show, that means we're together. The thing that I want is family togetherness family, um, you know, connection, love. I want all that. So we're going to have dinner four nights a week. So I can be militant about it and say dinner, four nights a week, dinner, four nights a week, dinner, four nights a week. And it would be miserable because then we're just trying to hit this metric. And that what's happened is surrogation. The metric was supposed to create family happiness and well-being. But instead of the North Star being family happiness and well-being, we surrogated the metric and it all became about the metric. So you think, what do family dinners have to do with this? Let's go to another well-known case, Wells Fargo. The intent of telling people to cross-sell was to have a more robust relationship with the customer, more than just doing their mortgage or their checking account, we should do their financial portfolio. The intent was to better serve customers. The metric became cross-selling. And it didn't become about serving customers. It just became about cross-selling. And we all know what happened there. And so the thing that we know to be true, going back to Wells Fargo and my family dinner example, is the gold, the secret sauce, as you talk about, is in the qualitative. So instead of just measuring how many customers are you cross-selling, we want to look at, and it's an imperfect science, which is why leaders don't like it, and it's hard to scale, but the companies who do it are very successful. We want to look at what's the quality of your conversations with customers? How are you speaking with customers? And we want to train you to speak to customers in a certain way, to be curious, to ask questions, to lean into them, to understand them, to express empathy. And those are all trainable skills They are things I can measure. They take some judgment to measure because they're qualitative. But if I start measuring that, one of my metrics may be cross-selling, but cross-selling is an indicator of how well you're doing those things. So in the family connectiveness, instead of just measuring the number of dinners, I want to say, what are we talking about? How much are we enjoying them? How much are we looking forward to them? What what What's the quality of the conversation? Those are, again, things that I can aim for, things I can train on, things we can talk about. It's going to take a little bit longer conversation. It's going to take a little more skilled person. And it's going to take a more skilled manager to coach those. But that's where the secret sauce is. I've got a, a, a friend and a colleague, shout out to Mark Boundy, who really talks uh, and writes about value selling. And he, he talks about the nonsense of uh, what's in the, the pipeline 
you know, on in a CRM system and where people just play games with that rather than measuring the quality of conversations with a customer, a potential customer, the quality of the relationship, those qualitative things that you're talking about that really do drive sales and value rather than gaming the CRM system. So I'll give you an example. We think we can't measure qualitative things, but we can. Have you ever watched uh, figure skating, the Olympics? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have too. I'm not a figure skater. None of my kids were figure skaters. I've watched figure skating once every four years. Me so too. in my lifetime as an adult, I've probably watched figure skating 10 times. Okay, but right. yeah, in figure skating, there are two scores. Technical merit and artistic impression. Technical merit is checking the boxes. Did you do the jumps? Did you do the turns? Did you do everything? You won't get into the Olympics without the technical merit. But nobody wins on technical merit. You lose it on technical merit. Where you win it is artistic impression, which is the more qualitative things. How did we feel during your performance? What was your connection to the audience? How How did the various technical things flow together in a way that was pleasing? Now, I said I'm not a figure skater, but you know what? I can usually pick the winner and you can too. Yeah. Can't you? You can watch it and you can pick it. And so this stuff about how do we judge this qualitative? If I can pick the winner at ice skating, we can judge qualitative sales skills because it we know it when we see it and we can also train for it. And that's the important thing is checking. You don't get into the Olympics without checking all the boxes on technical merit. You don't get into being in front of the customer without having a decent product, without making a certain number of sales calls, without sending the emails, without you know doing all those things. But it's the quality that you're once you're there that will differentiate you. You never differentiate on technical merit. Even if you do on tech differentiate on technical merit, someone's gonna catch you. Yeah. Yeah. It's only yeah. a matter of time. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot about processes and technology and you know, and those kinds of things, which have value. So I was, I'm talking to a buddy yesterday that so this relates to kind of what you're talking about. Hundred years ago, I went through um, a really good presentation skills training uh, workshop with I don't know six or so of my uh, colleagues, and the big takeaway that I still remember from that, Lisa, is so on day one we learned stuff, principles and skills, and on day two we all gave a presentation, right? And so each everyone gave a pre, giving a presentation had two people assigned to feedback. So if, if, if Joe's up there giving a presentation, Lisa's job is to give feedback on content. Mm-hmm. Did it make sense? Did it flow? You know, was there a clear takeaway? Mark's job was to give feedback on delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how well was it delivered? You know, was, was it a good cadence? Did the, the speaker connect with the audience? you know, kinds of things. So to me, that's kind of the same thing as technical and uh, and the qualitative, the artistic stuff that, that really matters. It's the same thing with a speaker, which you do for a living, that uh, one person can have great content and bore people to tears, right? and another pe- person could have good content and an awesome delivery, and that's who we want to listen to. And that's the thing that leaders 
have to understand. When you stand in front of your team and say our number one job is to deliver the earnings, you will get a short-term technical merit award. Yeah. When you stand in front of your team and say, here's what we do for customers and why it matters. Here's why those memories matter to people. Here's why their accounting systems matter. Here's why their IT matters. Here's why their dining experience matters. When you stand in front of your team and you talk about why what we do matters to customers in an authentic way, you move hearts and minds. Yeah. Well, exactly. we, didn't, we didn't talk about this, but I, I love the part of your book where you talked about you can tell a money story. Uh, or you can tell a purpose story as a leader. And again, you know, the, the money story is earnings, the people story, uh, the purpose story is we help clients create lasting memories, great memories. Uh, yeah. Well, which one resonates? <laughs> and I can tell you, there is brain science on this. So yes. there is business research that says the meaning story will drive more earnings. There is brain science that shows when I'm telling the money story, I am more likely to ignite the amygdala if I engage at all, the fear-based part of the brain. But when I'm telling the meaning story, I ignite my frontal lobes and the frontal lobes of the team because that's where... Uh, Empathy, compassion, problem solving, creativity. When I talk about making a difference, all those light up. So you can literally stand in front of your team. And if I have one leader telling the money story and another team telling the meaning story, the teammates of those two teams, those two leaders would have different parts of their brains lit up. And the team that's where the leader's telling the meaning story is going to be smarter. Like in the moment, you can literally make your people smarter, more creative. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the punchline of kind of what we're talking about is purpose drives passion. People are fired up. We, we are fired up when we have a purpose that really is meaningful to us. And it's always about something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Human beings are hardwired to want to make a difference. Once we get beyond food and shelter, we have two fundamental needs, belonging and significance. We want to belong to something that's bigger than ourselves and we want to know that our contribution matters. Yeah. And when you find that at work, it's magic. It, it is. Magic as a company. And if you don't have that at work, you will either quit, we're about to face the great resignation, or you'll do worse. You'll quit and stay, which is worse. You'll quit caring and you'll stay on the payroll. Yeah. I have a dear friend who's working for a company now who's lost their mojo, right? Went from purpose to money. And I said, man, how, how do you survive that? He said, I keep my head down and my mouth shut. And this is a guy that I have worked with who was all in when, when there was a purpose that he could relate to. And now it's do my job. He didn't say that, but that's implied based on what I know about him. Keep my head down and my mouth shut. That's who we want on our team. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the culture we want to drive, right? I will say something here that I have observed because I know people listening to this are interested in driving culture. Oftentimes, the purpose is already there, but it's implicit. If you want to drive culture, you need to make it explicit. Yeah. 
And I liken this to it's implicit that you might love your children because you take them places and do things, but nobody ever complained about a parent who then made it explicit and said, not just I'm driving you, I love driving you to school because it means so much to me. And so if you're a leader trying to drive culture and and you maybe are saying, we literally are curing cancer, or I work with some of these uh, pharmaceutical companies that are like, we have these arthritis drugs that enable people to get up out of bed and go do their, you know, be with their families. If that is the case, instead of just talking about the technical merit of what you do, you need to bring forth stories about how you make a difference because everybody needs to hear it, especially in today's time. So the shame of it is a lot of times there is a noble purpose in the company. They just haven't activated it in the hearts and minds of the people everywhere. Yeah, we have to celebrate with stories about who went above and beyond the call of duty uh, to deliver on that purpose. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things that we've identified. A lot of the companies that we work with now are companies where the senior leaders understand this and they have created a purpose, but where they need help is activating it at every level of the organization. Because there's often a big fall off as you go down through the organization. Reminds me of the clueless husband who says, why do I have to tell you I love you? You know, I do. Yeah. (laughs) Got it. We, got, we have to activate it, right? We have to say it. Things don't end well for that guy. When you're having that conversation, right. it's already gone south. Yes. That, that is the equivalent of, why do I have to tell him I appreciate him? I give him a paycheck. Same thing, right? Same thing. It's not work that way anymore. Lisa, there is a ton of great content, thought-provoking stuff in your book. As impossible as this ask is, if you could boil your message down to the listeners, to if, if there was one takeaway you want people to walk away with from this conversation, what would it be? Whether you are a major company, a government entity, an entrepreneur, or an individual performer working for someone else, when you set your sight line, on making a difference to someone. If your company, when you set your sight line on making a difference to customers, big organization, to your constituents, when you set your sight and you say, I have a noble purpose, my job is to make a difference to these people. You will increase your performance, your financial performance, your work output, and you will enjoy it more. The profit and the purpose are connected. You don't have to choose between making money and making a difference. When you decide that you have a purpose bigger than money and you are here to make a difference, you will make more money and you will also experience more joy in your life. Wow. Great message. Lisa, thank you so much. How do folks find your best-selling books and you who want to engage you for consulting, speaking? I'm on LinkedIn, but you can also just Google leading with noble purpose or selling with noble purpose. I will tell you, we have videos on our website that are free. I do a LinkedIn Live every Friday afternoon at 1.30 that's free. But if you're interested, just Google selling with noble purpose or leading with noble purpose and you'll find your way to me. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Great conversation. We could go for another hour without blinking, I'm sure. So folks, thanks for listening. I like to say that great podcasts are today's MBA. 
with real-time education from CEOs and thought leaders like Lisa. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. Companies with healthy, engaging workplaces have a distinct advantage over the competition in any industry. We hope you got at least one tip from this podcast to move you forward in creating a workplace people are proud to be a part of. Thanks for listening to Creating Great Workplaces with your host, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. For a complimentary consultation, call Dr. Mark at 636-346-8466. For more information, visit us at thirdwayinc.com. That is T-H-I-R-D-W-A-Y-I-N-C.com. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.